0: Well, happy Easter. Glad you're here with us this morning. What evidence is there of your faith is the question that we're thinking about this morning as we start a new series entitled Mastermind. And the reason we're thinking about this idea of mastermind is I believe that actions are a result of what we believe. And so that the scripture teaches us that whenever we come to Jesus and we say yes to him for the first time, that from that, that we have a new heart and a new mind. And with this new heart and a new mind as it's being transformed, that our actions should look different because our beliefs are being transformed. And that the linchpin for us as followers of Jesus, the the foundation for this new mind is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that all the other faith systems, all of the other intellectual systems in the world, even point to this fact that if the resurrection of Jesus Christ is true, then everything about Jesus is real. And so that's why we gather here this morning, right? As followers of Jesus, we're gathering here together because we believe that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is real, that we believe it is a fact. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 here in just a moment and be asking this question and thinking about it, is what does it mean and how do we know, what are the reasons that we have to believe without a shadow of a doubt that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a real fact. And that if that is true, our belief upon it should then impact how we live and how we love and that we would be a completely different person because of the power of the resurrection that raised Jesus also resides within inside of us. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Many of us have seen movies before, right? How many of you have seen movies? All right, you're there, okay. Now, when we go to the movies, there's things that happen in the movies that we just, we see them and we recognize the fact that that's not real. So we have this, we willfully suspend our disbelief because you see a car go and it goes really high, like 10 stories high, or it comes off a 10 story thing and it drops and then it drives off. And everybody knows that doesn't really happen in real life, but because it's a movie, we willfully suspend our disbelief and we're like, yes. So in other words, many times when we go to the movies, we check our brains at the door so that we can be entertained. And what I want you to grasp is, as followers of Jesus, we don't have to have a movie system faith. We don't have to check our brains at the door to have a true faith. We're not intellectually ignorant or anything like that. As a matter of fact, we have a lot of history, we have a lot of archaeological evidence, we have a lot of scientific even evidence that proves the fact that Jesus is who he says he is. So don't check your brains at the door. As a matter of fact, engage them and do the research and find out that this resurrection thing is real. And so we're going to start that digging in this morning. The resurrection of Jesus is the central issue for us as followers of Jesus Christ. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 15. Starting in verse 12. Now, in 1 Corinthians, Paul is the author of this book, and he's talking to the church in the city of Corinth. And the city of Corinth was a crazy city. So, when you think of a crazy city where you think of maybe Las Vegas or parts of New York or whatever, you, you got this little place, and you think, the craziest of craziest of craziest, this is the city of Corinth. And then you can imagine this fledgling group of Christians that are trying to flesh out what it means to be a Christ follower in the midst of this craziness and, and how they can be followers of Jesus with the influence around them. And so here Paul is talking to them, and, and one of the questions that's been arisen, because people are, are asking the question, is the resurrection real? Can it be real? And so here Paul digs into that in 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 12. But tell me this, since we preach that Christ rose from the dead... Why are some of you saying that there will be no resurrection of the dead? For if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then all of our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. And we apostles would all be lying about God. For we have said that God raised Christ from the grave. But that can't be true if there is no resurrection of the dead. And if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you're still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ is lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone else in the world. And so here in this last little part, he's even saying it's like a vapor that you are reaching out. You think that you're grabbing a hope. Grabbing onto something with hope and the moment that you grab it you realize that it's a vapor and it's not real And so that if the resurrection is not true, then our faith is like a vapor We've been placing our hope in something that's not real And so we're reaching out and it's really a false hope which there's no hope that's worse than that And so you're reaching out with a hope thinking you're going to grab it But it's nothing but a vapor and there's nothing there and how pitiful it is to live a life That's full of false hope So the resurrection matters verse 20 But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of the great harvest of all who have died. So this morning, I want to build on this and point out some reasons for us to believe. The first thing is this, is that Jesus is a historical person. If you have your program inside of there, there's some notes you can follow along with. Jesus is a historical person. We have tons and tons of documents. There are more documents that say that Jesus was a historical person than any other person in history and and the antiquities. There's not a shadow of a doubt that there's a person named Jesus of Nazareth that walked this earth and lived and did the things that he did. So Jesus historical person and we have more than enough proof that he's a historical person. So many different documents. Even more as we dig into the archaeological evidence over the last 10, 15, 20 years, every time in the Middle East that they do some more archaeological digs, they find more evidence that proves the point. We're even finding the very coin that, that Jesus said, hey, this is The coin that you should be giving and talking about taxes, they've even found that specific coin. And so the specificity of even the events and the conversations that Jesus had, we're finding the evidence to do that. One of the most interesting things recently, as a matter of fact, is the Smithsonian Institute has been given the task of verifying and validating archaeological evidence for the Book of Mormon. And so they began to, to study the Book of Mormon and look at all the different places that the stories of the Book of Mormon took place. They've done archaeological evidence, trying to find evidence to prove the Book of Mormon, and they have not found one proof yet. So other faiths have based themselves on some historical documents, and they're not even true. And so here we, year after year, century after century, are gaining more and more evidence of the fact that the person of Jesus Christ lived in our midst. That's the first truth. The first reason we should believe. The second reason is Jesus's works went unchallenged. Now, Jesus did all kinds of things. So he healed people. He made the blind see. He made those that had arms atrophied. He brought them to full life. He cast out demons. All kinds of different things were there. And so there were Bunches of eyewitnesses to the works that he did and so they couldn't question the validity of the work that he did They questioned by which authority he did it So the works of jesus are unquestioned So there were people around and jesus was saying hey be healed You can now see and he could see and he would go to the eye doctor and they're like you're 2020 and you used to be blind So there's validation Of the works The question was by which authority is this by the authority of god or by the authority of satan? And so there's, the question is there of the works of Jesus are unchallenged. Even in Acts chapter 2, the first sermon of the New Testament, Peter gathers the throes of people around that are there to celebrate Pentecost, and Jesus says that you have attested to, you have seen the works of Jesus. And the people said yes. The works of Jesus are unchallenged. The third thing that I want you to see is that Jesus' character was unquestioned. He, one of the things that he said in Mark chapter 8, he says, I am without sin. Now, that's a pretty bold statement. He's been living with the disciples for two and a half, three years at this point, and he says, I'm without sin. And, and, and the, all the disciples are like, yeah, that's right. Now, most of us, if we were to gather together with our friends in the living room and someone said, hey, I'm without sin, everybody go, <laughs> hold on. Do you remember when? Or you know, I was with you the other night or last weekend, and yeah, you were not without sin. I mean, they would quickly be like, psh, "Here's the list of things." Right? If you have kids, they're gonna have they're gonna tell you the list of sins. Okay, and so you've got a list of sins. And so Jesus says, "I am without sin." And those that knew him best looked at him and said, "You're right." His character was unchallenged. As a matter of fact, if you look at other religions. They may not follow Jesus as a Messiah, but they point to him as the ideal supreme human being and the perfect example of what it means to live life well. Because they look at him and say, hey, he loved well. His character was without question. Gandhi went and studied Christianity and he said, hey, I would probably be a Christian if it wasn't for Christians. But I like that Jesus guy. The character of Jesus was unquestioned. One of the most diabolical leaders of modern history, Stalin, was a fan of Jesus. And he said that is the supreme being, character, of what it means to love and to care about. Even Stalin himself said Jesus' character is unchallenged. Jesus' character is unchallenged. And so what does that mean? It also means, number four, is that Jesus' identity as the Son of God is confirmed. His character is unquestioned, and his identity as a son of God is confirmed. In John fourteen, six he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in Mark chapter eight, there's a story about Jesus' is walking. He's been doing some ministry and some healing, and he looks at his disciples and he says, Hey, hey, what are, what's the buzz about me? What's, what's happening on Instagram and Snapchat? What are people saying about me? And the guys say, Well, there's some are saying you're John the Baptist reincarnated or you're Elijah or you're whatever and and, and he's like, Okay, what but who you that know me, no filter, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Messiah. You're the long-awaited Christ. And so it is unfiltered life. Those that knew his character the best and, and saw his ministry and his life, not only knew his character was in question, but they confirmed the fact that he was the Son of God. And in, Matthew, in Mark chapter 9, verse 7, they Peter, James, and John had an opportunity at the Mount of Transfiguration to to spend some alone time with Jesus, and they were spending that alone time, and God showed up in their midst, and God spoke, and he said, This, Jesus, is my son. Again, confirmation for them. Over 700-plus Old Testament prophecies fulfilled. Every prophecy to the minutiae, minute detail has been fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Even this guy, Pliny the Younger, whose uncle was Pliny the Older. Cool names, huh? You're the older Pliny, I'm the younger Pliny. So there's his name. And Pliny the Younger, in 111 A.D., wrote to a Roman emperor because he was responsible for for doing away with the people of the way. And so Pliny the Younger is sending a note to the Roman emperor, and he's saying, listen, this people of the way are different than any other group. And here's some of the descriptions. He said, hey, they meet at dawn every day. They worship this Jesus guy as a god, and they love well. They're known in the community for how they love each other, and they love people in the community, and they won't bow down to any other god or any other person and won't give money to the Roman emperor. Even under the threat of death. The people of the way were so moved in the early church that they knew and they understood. They were the closest ones to the resurrection. If the resurrection wasn't a historical event, if Jesus wasn't a historical person, early on that movement would have fallen away. But we see from the character and from the identity of who Jesus is and how the people of the way moved confirmation that he was the Son of God. The fifth thing I want you to grasp is that Jesus' death... Is undisputed. There are several different theories to try to pass away what happened at death. One is the, the swoon theory. And the swoon theory is, is that because of the excruciating pain and the excruciating experience of the, of, of the cross, that Jesus passed out. But what we know is, as doctors and everybody has kind of studied this, that the Romans were the best at crucifying. And crucifixion was the worst of the worst deaths. And so crucifixion isn't that you're going to be dying by by being beat up or whatever. You're going to be dying through suffocation. And so you're put on the cross, and they would put these nails through your wrists right here and hold you on and then nail you through your feet, and you're kind of bent like this. And so that every time that you need to catch breath, so any of you that have struggled with breathing anyway, you understand this, and so he's here, and he has to pull himself up to catch a breath. So that every time that he's pulling himself up, the pain and the agony in the wrists and that has to push himself up through the feet, he's feeling that. Of course, he's already been beaten 39 times with lashes. And those lashes, every time that they go around, they wrap around and there's bone and there's metal in there. And so it wraps around and at one, it beats you, but then it also rips away flesh. And so 39 lashes, the reason they don't do 40, because they had proven over and over that 40 kills you. So let's stop at 39. So Jesus had been blashed 39 times, ripped apart. He's standing on the cross, and every time that he needs a breath, he's pulling himself up, and it drops again for a little bit longer. And so the very worst way that you can possibly die, Jesus is on the cross, and so these guys that were the Roman soldiers understood and knew exactly when someone would die. And so they came to Jesus at the at the time that they were inspecting Jesus. And Jesus had just cried out, Tetelestai, which means it is finished. And the scripture says he breathed his last. And soon after that, the Roman soldiers walked up and they checked on him because usually what they would do whenever it began to get dark and someone wasn't dead, they would break your legs so that you would drop and you couldn't push up anymore so you would suffocate faster. So that the Roman soldiers walked up to Jesus and realized he wasn't breathing, so they didn't break his legs, which is another fulfillment of prophecy. And so they took the spear and they punched him in the gut over here, and immediately water and blood came out, which doctors tell us is that's probably the pericardial sac, which proves that he was dead. So our Jesus, our living Savior, was dead. He wasn't passed out. He wasn't really exhausted. He was dead. And so they wrapped him in burial clothes and they put him in the tomb and he, he spent the night there. The swoon theory is proven. And, the, and then also the Roman guards would have to stand in front of the stone and the stone would take five people soldiers to move it and to roll it into place and at the very moment that they would roll it into place then they would seal it and then they would put the roman emperor's insignia upon it it was sealed and it was put shut and those guards were there guarding that tomb with a threat of life or death if something happens to that tomb it's death for the soldiers and so they're going to do whatever they can possibly do to guard and protect that tomb so the swoon theory is is that jesus passed out took the grave clothes off, and somehow in the middle of the night, knock, 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 and convinced the soldiers to join with him. And to move. I imagine if there was a knock, knock, knock on that thing, the soldiers are like, I'm out, peace out, dude, I'm gone. Get me to Florida or something. I mean, they're moving, they're getting out of there. And so the ridiculousness of that theory is there before you. He didn't pass out, he didn't open the door. As a matter of fact, it would take five to, to roll it. They say it would take 20 to 25 to roll it out of the depths of the groove. To get it out. The other theory is one of the wrong tomb, that the disciples had just been there the night before and had been a part of the burial, and that the, the very next morning that they went to tomb 401 instead of 501, because they forgot where they buried Jesus. And I guarantee you, they didn't forget where they buried Jesus. And so the wrong tomb. And then the other the other theory. Is that the disciples stole the body. So there was 12 of them and they got together and they all stole it. And, and that they were like, hey, let's cut, get together. Let's do a little blood, blood brother thing and just, let's just come up with this theory that we've, that Jesus has been resurrected and we won't tell anybody where Jesus is actually buried at and we'll, we'll pay off the Roman soldiers and we'll create this elaborate hoax and, and, and you know what? It may cost us our life, but let's just go to the end of our life and, and, and not tell anybody. Listen, I've told some white lies. Sorry. In my life, and none of them are worth dying for. And I don't know about you, I mean, you may have done some doozies of lies, but I guarantee you, if your life is in front of you, you're probably going to be like, okay, I I give up. I mean, me, if you like pull my fingernails out, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm done, you know. And these guys, Peter crucified upside down, people beheaded. The excruciating pain with which they went through, and none of them, none of them said, "Eh, let me tell you a secret, we stole his body. Nobody said that. The disciples didn't steal the body of Jesus. His death is undisputed. And then sixth, Jesus' resurrection is intellectually and legally convincing In the court of law, you need two to three witnesses to prove that something is true. And so we have predictions in the Old Testament. Even Jesus himself predicted, hey, I'm going to die and I'm going to raise again. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 3. Thinking about the idea of witnesses. Here Paul says, I passed on to you what was most important, what has also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said, the prophecy. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said, prophecy. He was seen by Peter, he was an eyewitness, and by the twelve. And after that, he was seen by more than five hundred of his followers at one time. In other words, they had church. There was church going on, and Jesus is standing front talking, and people are like, I see. The resurrected Jesus. So there's not just three witnesses. There's now 512 witnesses already of people seeing Jesus. He's like, I'm going to go above and beyond. I know what the legal thing says. I know what the intellectual thing says. You need three witnesses. I'm telling you, I'm going to give you abundance of proof that I was once dead. I was once buried. And now I'm walking with you. An abundance of proof. Most of them who are still alive, though some have died, there's been a, there was a scene by James, his brother, and later by all the apostles. And last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also, Paul, saw him. And I'm the least of the apostles. In fact, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle after how I have persecuted the church. Now, in the early church, centered in Jerusalem. And so as a church for the first 20 to 25 years is, is centered in Jerusalem, and that's where a lot of Jesus' ministry was in Jerusalem and surrounding Jerusalem. And so you can imagine, not only were there the evidence of eyewitness accounts of his resurrection afterwards, but even after his ascension and the early church began to grow and to rapidly grow, there was testimony after testimony. Because imagine this. Someone says, hey, I don't believe in this Jesus guy, and I don't believe in what he did. And so if most of his ministries in Jerusalem, people are saying, hey, well, there's Sally over there. Let's, Hey, Sally. Sally, come up here. Tell your story of life change when you reached out in the midst of the crowd and c- touched Jesus' cloak and you were healed. See, there were there were witnesses, the very people that were healed, the very people that were changed in the early church, they had eyewitness account after eyewitness account. And so in those early moments when they're saying, hey, I don't know about this Jesus guy, they say, hey, 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 Matt, come tell us about that time that your five friends brought you on a mat and dropped you through the ceiling and like pfft, and you, Jesus said, Hey, what are you doing here, dude? And he's like, I want to walk. And he's like, Get up and walk. And he walked. And, and to tell that story, and people were like, Whoa, that's cool. Do you have a YouTube of that? You know? And so, this time after time, these eyewitness accounts that verify that Jesus was alive and that the resurrection happened and the, the movement of God, even the conversion of Saul. Saul was the most adamant persecutor of the early church he was the student of all students of the jewish way and so he was adamantly pursuing as a matter of fact he was they said that he was the top murderer of the christians in the early church he was getting certificate after certificate after certificate to pursue husbands to pursue families and to eradicate them because they converted to christianity And so here's a guy who was adamantly opposed to the church, who was adamantly opposed to the person of Jesus Christ, encountered the risen Christ, and his direction completely changed. His life, which once had been about persecution of the church in Jerusalem, now became about expanding the church beyond Jerusalem and his encounter with him. The evidence is overwhelming For the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And last, and maybe not least, at least to me, is my encounter with the living Christ. Your encounter with the living Christ. That you have encountered the risen Savior. And what he has done and the transformation that he's had in you. That Saul has had a conversion, but our prayer is, is that you've encountered the same risen, resurrected Christ, and you have been once going this direction, but because of your encounter with the resurrected Christ, you're now moving in the way of this direction. That you have a new heart and a new mind. That you have a new foundation that you can have joy in life despite the craziness of life situations and life circumstances. The verse that the kids quoted so well earlier, John 3:16, for God so loves the world that he gave his one and only son. That whosoever believes in him shall not perish but shall have eternal life. God sent his son into this world not to judge the world or condemn the world but to bring life. So many times as Christians, we and others in the world think that Jesus came and that as Christians that we're talking about Jesus to judge and to condemn. In reality, we're saying, put yourself in front of the resurrected Christ and find life. For there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. There's just life. And in Hebrews ten sixteen, this is the new covenant I will make with them after that time, after the resurrection, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts. And I will write them on their minds. You will have a new heart and a new mind. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be thinking about this idea. And again, the linchpin of our faith. The very thing that what we believe and what we say and what we do hinges on this truth. And if this truth is not true, then we shouldn't be here today. So by you being here today, you're saying, I'm at least investigating this truth. So here's what I want you to do is you're investigating or thinking about it. And you're like, hey, this is this is a lot of information in a short amount of time. Read the case for Christ. Read the case for Easter. Read the, demand, the evidence that demands a verdict. There's several different books of intellectual people that are much smarter than I am that have studied this for the sole purpose to prove the fact that Jesus did not live and was not resurrected. And these guys and women have studied it deep and have looked into all the evidence and looked into the documents and, and looked and studied and come around and even fought with it and finally come to the point where they say, there's not with a shadow of a doubt, I want to prove this wrong, but I can't. There's no doubt that Jesus... Resurrected from the dead. So what? If I believe in that, how will my actions with a new heart and a new mind change? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the resurrection. Sometimes it becomes so commonplace that we forget the uniqueness of, of the resurrection of Jesus. We forget the overwhelming sadness and grief because of death, but also the new life that comes and the victory that comes from the resurrection. Father, I pray that as followers of Jesus that we would not check our brains at the door, that we would not suspend our intellect to just kind of hope That the resurrection is there and we're reaching out to a vapor and it's not real. But, Father, that we would, as followers of Jesus, investigators of the person of Jesus, investigators of the resurrection, that we would study deep and know that your word will not return void. The truth is the truth and the truth will set us free. Now, we may not want to believe the truth. But if the truth is the truth and we believe it and understand it and allow it to rule, it will set us free. And Father, like the church in Corinth, we know that we live in a crazy world and much, if not all, of the world it seems like it's against us when we say yes to Jesus. And that we're swimming upstream and that people look at us like we're weird say that we're weird and all the different things, but father, that we can know that we can know that we can know that we worship God, the son of God who gave his life and resurrected for me so that I can have a new life, a new heart and a new mind. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen.